With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. A station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. And 
first tarot deck came to me when I was 16 on my birthday by my very Catholic grandmother. And um, yeah, she, yeah. And then we found out a few years later when I had seen some strange things that my mother was like, yeah, that's something that has always been in the family. And my grandmother had apparently seen it before her and one woman per generation saw this creature and um, it was something that was, yeah, it certainly set me on a path of exploration and determining, you know, who was I and what was all of this. And then I got busy with life in college. And then um, after I got married, I got sick. I ended up with cancer and Ooh. beat that four, four times, not just once, but four times. Wow. And in that, yeah, in that process, I decided that, you know, having come that close to death's door and seeing what that was and that, you know, that movie, the bucket list that was out several years ago and these old men that decided they needed to start doing something about it. I got serious and Mm -hmm. I made a list of all the things that I meant to get around to. And at the same time, I had that, that moment sitting alone in a hospital room and just kind of yelling, saying, God, where are you? And not feeling that male energy around me. And it was just, it was that moment of knowing that, you know, there was something else that I was meant to be doing. And then I felt this, this female energy beside me saying, I've got you, I've got you. And I didn't know who it was. I didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until I was back on the path of healing that our community was offering a Wicca 101 class. Mm -hmm. And I was able to attend that. And um, the, the, our former high priestess is the one that was teaching that and finding out that I wasn't crazy, that this is an actual thing and everything that I had been experiencing and learning about was something that other people were, were dealing with. And that idea of the homecoming and realizing that this is the path I was meant to be on and finding that balance between the male and the female. And that kind of led into the process with all of my writing deciding that I needed to find a way to balance that out, that we needed strong men and strong women in writing and that uh, the characters needed to stand on their own and not fade into the background. So I started putting that into my writing. That sounds amazing and empowering. Um, And yes, you're right. There is a need for that uh, type of uh, balance. We live in a world where, uh, we haven't attained that balance in our uh, collective social life, but uh, individually we can indeed work on it. And it sounds like you're not only doing it within yourself, but uh, uh, spreading that to the outside world. So thank you. Yes, thank you. I'm I'm glad I can do it. You know, I have the ability, and my mother always said, if you have the skill, don't waste it. Get get it out there. <laughs> Sage advice. Um, Now, you've written quite a number of books. I visited your Amazon uh, authors uh, page, and uh, you have a book that uh, is coming out or has just come out. I guess we'll start uh, there, and then we'll work our way backwards. Sure. So Assassin's Gift is a, a book that was actually, the concept was developed when I was about 13 or 14 years old. A girlfriend and I didn't do normal slumber parties. We would sit around and um, come up with these grand story ideas. And then I would go home over the next week and write notes and scratch things down and keep them all in a binder. And that was part of my 
process of going through my healing was get all those notes out and put them into story form. And this was the first story that I actually put down on paper as a complete novel. Um, I tried to put it out through traditional publishing uh, right after that. And I heard a lot of, um, you have great world building, you have great characters, you have great voice, you have a great description of the world building, but we're currently doing something with mermaids or we're doing pirates or we're doing, you know, it was always something different. So Uh it was always put on the back burner and, um, I finally just set it aside and um, focused on just writing for other people, just little snippets of this and that. And um, it kind of got waylaid for a while. And then um, the other trilogy came about, it was only supposed to be a short story for a friend of mine. And um, it kind of developed into a thing that he was a three-time visit visitor to Iraq with the tour duties and he wanted to go a fourth time (laughs) and the military said, no, you can't do that. And um, part of his healing then was to write down what he was going through and asking me, could you turn me into an elf and make this (laughs) into something? Yeah. He's like, you turn all this garbage into something that helps me, but you know, here's the ending. This is the only thing I have as an expectation. And other people said, well, if you're taking him, you got to take a team because you never send somebody into the field alone. So I got characters from everybody else. And that took a lot of time to develop that story, but it was a labor of love. And then I thought, just put it out on self-publishing because it's just for those people. And it took off. And I started getting uh, emails and contacted by other people with, well, that's his story, but what's the female lead story? So that came about and then figured as long as I'm doing her story, might as well make it a trilogy and do her son and, you know, 18, 20 years later. And then I, I pulled this book back out and I revisited it. And um, some people that had originally done my beta reading for me way, way back, just gave me that look of it's about time. And they, they really supported me in this. They did a lot of heavy editing for me and, Um, This is the first time I've actually used a professional cover artist. I've had Mm. friends and former coworkers that that posed for the pictures on everything else and took the pictures. And so this is, this has really been a new jump for me to move into this uh, realm with Assassin's Gift and to take a character that wasn't even supposed to exist. When we made this family up, it was supposed to be just what was there. And then this friend of mine said, well, just one more, just, just one more. And <laughs> we ended up with Aaron Bradley, the baby of the family. And his story ends up being the most unique because as the youngest, he was away from the family the longest and doesn't know them that well and mm-hmm. gives him a unique perspective when he comes back to them of who are they, these people and how am I related to them? And um, finding he doesn't understand his sisters at all, which they've got a whole different set of stories that will come later. But that's that's where he's at, that he accidentally falls into the study of poisons and becomes an assassin. Wow. It sounds like the world you built took on a life of its own, and now it's kind of constructing itself. I'm reminded of uh, Robert E. Howard's story of... Uh, um, how uh, Conan first came to be. He was having a, uh, um, a dry spell in terms of his writing. 
and it lasted for a while. And then all of a sudden, Conan appeared to him fully blown and menaced him into uh, uh, jotting down the first few tales. And then uh, from there, the entire world opened up. And uh, even though Robert E. Howard uh, is gone from us for decades, his world still lives and is, uh, th- on through the imagination of countless people. It, it does. And that's exactly how it happens with writing is these characters just dog you. They, they're in your head and you can't get rid of them. And you just have to start writing down on scratch paper and napkins and paper towels. <laughs> you, you end up developing the world based on these scraps and notes. That is awesome. And, uh, um, you also have an urban green man series. The cover of that looks uh, totally fascinating. Yes, I was so honored to be part of that. It was um, Edge Publishing, one of the big publishing houses, actually put out a call asking for people to write stories and poetry that related to the green man. If you took him out of nature and dropped him in the city, what would happen? And I gave it a shot. I thought, you know, this this story's kind of been, I'm middle of the Midwest farmland, and what would happen if the farm started dying? And it was something in the city causing it. And that's what I did was a story called Withergreen. And um, I found out later that we were all grouped once we were chosen. Um, They had over 1,600 applicants. And they narrowed us down to 500 and then down to 100 and then down to the 20-something that were chosen. And the editors grouped us by element. So I ended up under air. Yeah, it was kind of neat. And I thought, well, if I'm dealing with farmland, shouldn't I be earth? And when I was visiting with the editors about it, they said, no, you're air because you have a character that has to be very um, spiritually conscious and stepping outside of her comfort zone. And she's having to think through and reason and find other ways to work around something. And um, by doing that, she was able to, save her partner. So I have Jackie of the Green and her partner Sil- for Sylvanus who is passing away. And it's because of his death that the farms are dying. And it's a, a gremlin type thing that's in the city that is causing this blight. Oh, that sounds incredibly awesome. Um, everything you've written sounds incredibly awesome. So you might uh, have a new fan in the making here because uh, I definitely have to check uh, these uh, tales out. And how about Siren songs? Siren Song was um, another fun one that I didn't submit it really for publication, but there was an open call that was out asking for different takes on mermaids. And I was like, well, they keep talking about mermaids, so I'll give this a shot. And what I did was um, took a siren that didn't want to be a siren. And her majority was coming up, and she was going to have to prove that she was a good siren by luring some men into their death. But the song actually was kind of a reverse thing for her because she would hear the pirates singing on their ships as they went by, and that called to her. And she ends up, when the day comes, she hears another pirate ship coming by, and she goes out to hear them, and she kind of climbs up the side of the ship, only she's captured. And you don't know exactly what happens at the end of the tale. You know, is she's caught, but is she going to be returned? Is she going to be hurt? It's kind of left up to the reader to imagine what happens next. Hmm. 
Uh, yes, as soon as I saw the title, I, I remembered the, the tale you started telling about uh, uh, shopping your book around. It's like, no, we're looking for something on mermaids. So I was wondering if this was the, your response. <laughs> it, it, a little bit, yeah. It was one of those things that when I saw that open call with, you know, let's, let's see what happens when sirens don't act typical. And I was like, I got this. <laughs> Oh, that is awesome. Uh, these books sound uh, exciting, and, and since the world uh, you're building has continued to grow, uh, I'm imagining many more titles uh, with uh, the characters and the places and uh, uh, the histories that you're currently weaving. Yes, um, Aaron's story for Assassin's Gift is the first in a septology. It's going to be the Lords of Drakeldor, and there's seven brothers. And each of them will get a story, starting with the baby and then going to the next oldest and so on up to the eldest. And um, something that there's Easter eggs that will show up. So um, in this book, there's a character named Adam Erickson. And he's actually the father of the female lead in the, the original trilogy. So those things will start coming out as, as the stories develop. And um, they're part of the same world, just different continents. Wow. Wow, that, that is awesome. Um, you're also into role-playing, I assume, uh, because you have a business oh, yes. uh, adventure. So um, did any of these tales uh, um, evolve from or in uh, role-playing games that you run? Um, a little bit of the original um, Rangers Homecoming did come about from some role play. I was part of an online community, and um, some of the characters were originally there. Um, Annie, the main character in, in the second book, is actually originally a character I had played. And uh -huh. um, we do a lot of tabletop. We've done Eberron, D&D 3.5, uh, Pathfinder currently. So we have a lot of that. And I actually use that, the role-playing abilities at work as well. We use character sheets for some of our students that are on that nerdy, geeky side of things. <laughs> if they don't like the typical evaluation form, I can sit down and say to them, you know, well, right now we're kind of looking at the fact you're not doing well with customer service. Your charisma is really low. And you're not doing well with handling the books, so your dex is kind of low. What I'm looking at is maybe like a level three rogue, you know, and then when they're like, wait, no, 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 I want to be better than that. Okay, let's work on it. So <laughs> That is funny. I, I, I've used role-playing game concepts uh, in my work when I was uh, working in psychiatric rehabilitation and designing vocational programs. Um, I, I was drawing a lot of material from my GM skills and <laughs> putting these programs together, and they were very <laughs> Uh, but uh, I think they were effective because I'd been a dungeon master for many years and not because uh, of the principles that I was, uh, you know, applying. Um, that is awesome. Tell me about the, the business. Uh, um, how can someone hire an adventurer? And if they hire an adventurer, what do they get for their uh, the, the roles that they're creating or, or, or adventuring in? Well, that started actually, I, I always said, you know, I love painting the miniatures and a friend of mine here had kind of got me into that. And then I started racking up these boxes of minis that I, there was way too many in the house. And I thought, you know, this is something that every adventurer seems to start out at an end. So that's mm -hmm. why I have the bar as the bar is my, my motto, you know, my banner on there. And that is what goes when I do to go to conventions to sell and things. 
we have an actual little bar that we set up with the old tavern sign. And um, you want to go to the bar to hire an adventurer. So uh, we have, we usually set it up with big scenes where the adventurers are busy fighting the monsters and you can choose to adopt a monster if you like instead. And um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, and I, I've done custom orders for people. I've had some that look at something online and say, well, I like this, but, and just recently I was at a convention and somebody said, well, I like this one, but it'd be better if it was a draw. And I was like, give me two seconds. I can slap some paint on its face and we'll call it good, you know? So I don't have, <laughs> it's real easy to fix those things and make sure people walk away with what they want. Oh, that is incredibly awesome. Has, has the inn uh, appeared in any of the, the stories? Not yet. I'm thinking it has to. Um, yeah, for definitely. all I know, it could be. Yeah, it could be the one that Aaron goes to in his book. But I'm kind of thinking um, he has a brother that's a pirate captain. I think it's going to show up in his story. Now your um, writing and your um, uh, painting miniatures and uh, role playing. Uh, those are all mythic, legendary, or they incorporate mythic, legendary, folkloric uh, themes. Uh, and mm -hmm. so does your spirituality um, as well. And I've known Thomas Ponton, uh, who we know in common, for many years. Yes. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember when I first discovered your group and, ha and have spoken to him. He thinks very highly of it uh, and has spoken of it yeah. several times. How did you, uh, you had mentioned that you, um, you learned of the group because they had a class. How did you grow through the group and become the new high priestess? Uh, accidentally. No, <laughs> um, it was one of those things I attended the class and um, I absolutely loved what I was hearing. And the, the group that I was in that class with bonded really well. And many of us stayed in contact even afterwards. And when I heard that that Phoenix, our high priestess at the time, was um, in charge of the group here in town, and she extended the offer for people that were interested to continue on that path. So I took her up on the offer, and I went to a couple of their meetings and fell in love with it. it the group, the people, the tradition, the way that they did their, their casting, everything. And I was just probably two or three years where I was just content to be a member. And I don't even know what it was, but I remember walking in one day and seeing her and two other women that had been part of the group and they were kind of rising in rank as well. All three of them gave me this, what the heck are we seeing kind of a look. And I thought, well, what are they seeing? And they all and individually took me aside and said, something has changed about you you've been so quiet and so reserved and I, I am very quiet most of the time as I'm getting to know people. And they said, all of a sudden there's this presence about you that you are just bigger than life. You have the makings in you. What's going on. You're going to become a high priestess. We know that we see it. And I was like, I'm going to disagree with you. And they're like, no, 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 we're right. We know. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> and they just started pushing and encouraging me and showing me how to do some leading and how to do the different things that they were doing that I thought came so easily for them. And they were great mentors to me all the way through. And then our high priestess um, decided she wanted to explore some other faith options and to step outside of things. And she really started pushing 
and saying, you know, you've got it and you're going to be the next one. So we're going to get you ready and we're going to get you set to do this. And we did just at Lamas now this year, we had a parting ritual for her and she passed leadership to me. Um, we definitely still feel that hole a little bit. You know, she's, she was one of the founding members of our tradition. So it's, it's a big loss and it's a lot of big shoes to fill, but I have a very good group of people that are with me and supporting me and making sure that I'm on track and that they're becoming the best that they can be with my help. So I'm really appreciative of them and of the other women that are helping lead the other groups. It sounds like the group is in very good uh, hands. Uh, can you describe how your group differs from uh, other Wiccan groups? We have a lot of similarities. Um, we are based mostly out of the Alexandrian tradition, but we are also very eclectic. We have each person is allowed to have their own faith outside of this. So we have people that are Odinists, we have Celtic tradition, we have Thayeri tradition. So they're all over the place. But somehow it all meshes when we come together and we share in the same type of a ritual. And we honor those differences at different times of the year where we'll say we're going to do a retreat and you take the lead on this and show us what you can do with your tradition. So it's it's a nice way that we include what people are following and what's really close to their hearts and making sure that we all share in what's important to them. That That is very wise. I found that uh, that works uh, for my group as well. Um, everyone collectively resonates with uh, the Greco-Roman Egyptian uh, ways of uh, approaching uh, the divine. Uh, however, people also have their own uh, unique uh, Celtic, Norse, uh, and other uh, spiritualities. Uh, so uh, fortunately in antiquity, religion was syncretic and the ancients themselves equated the different uh, gods of the different pantheons uh, through the days of the week, through the planets and you know, other systems. So we're pretty sure who's, who's who behind the cultural masks. So integrating mm -hmm. a little of that into what we're doing has proven very uh, successful and very powerful as well. I think it only makes the group stronger to have those differences and not be so insular that you're willing to look outside of what you expect to be the norm and to challenge yourself to learn something new. Very, very true. Um, and uh, now I understand uh, from what uh, Thomas had said that your group also does uh, community outreach, that uh, you don't hide or uh, seclude yourselves from the world, that you're very active in the world as well. Yes, that's a um, funny thing with that. When I, I was in the training to become the high priestess, I actually, one of the things, because our high priestess had been changing what she was doing, she was a little more reserved and kept back a little. So, you know, for a long time, we were very, very public and then very quiet for a few years. And when I started to get to the point I was going to step up, I went to the dean of our library and I spoke to her and said, they're putting me in a role as a leader. So I can't hide who I am. You know, some of the members have that ability and for their protection, of course, but I won't be able to. Are you going to be okay if people recognize my name 
mundanely and magically. And she looked at me, and I thought the best answer from from a boss ever. She said, I don't care if you worship a fish as long as you do the job I need you to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I so salute I'm her. very lucky that way. Uh, yeah, I'm very open with my spirituality as well. I've been openly Olympian since uh, um, high school, if not earlier. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I feel it's best to be out there and open. And, and people generally have the same questions uh, that are based on uh, things they read in books or things they saw in movies or uh, things they heard from uh, other people who aren't uh, in the mythical spiritualities uh, in terms of their um, community. Uh, so uh, being out and being open is very helpful and builds uh, bridges. Now, yes, I, and we just we just recently yeah. did a divination day. We partnered with a bookstore, mm-hmm. which was an amazing idea for you know it was a lady I worked with at a li- at the library, and she also works at a bookstore. They got the books in that we recommended, so that if people liked what we were teaching them, they could purchase the books and go home and practice. And then we also just did our first open Grand Forks Samhain in many years. So that was kind of a big deal for us just this past weekend. And it was just a very simple honor what you've lost. You know, it's a typical Samhain, very low-key thing. But Mm -hmm. we had some people that that came afterwards, and we were all in garb, Shangulans, the whole thing, and we we offered to let them stay and ask questions and they talked for probably 45 minutes just asking what's this and why do you and different things and i think it went a long way for all of our guests who are very very traditionally christian to have that opportunity to safely ask those questions of a different faith and they all said they took away something from it which was nice yeah that that is incredibly uh, awesome and uh um, spreads a lot of goodwill in your community and helps lower uh, the uh, uh, misconceptions that people may have. Um, now, you, it sounds like you're still associated with libraries. Uh, do you still teach as well? I Yeah, I mean, with information literacy. So librarians do teach, actually, but we do okay. more how do, you, how do you do library research kinds of teaching. And I also present at a lot of different conferences, mostly um, the North Dakota Library Association. And um, we have something called the ACRL Roadshow, which is the American College and Research Libraries. And mm-hmm. I've been presenting on more customer service and management and um, how to be a decent leader, not just faith on the faith side, but in business. How do you treat people respect- respectfully and like they're people, you know, that you don't want to just treat them like they're drones, that uh-huh. give them that, that opportunity to rise and to be great, because if you don't give it to them, who will? Very, very true. And that is incredibly awesome that you're able to uh, bridge all of these worlds uh, through what you're doing. And uh, I wish there were a lot more people uh, doing what you do. I do too. It would be nice. There, there, I hear so many people that say, well, I want to write a book, but I just don't have time. Yeah, you do. I write for 15 minutes on my morning break. That's all I have time for in my day, but I have 15 minutes every day that I write. And it is true. You make time for it. Like uh, somebody had suggested, I've written on and off for years, but 
um, you know, just basically a, an article here, an article there, um, but nothing, you know, really substantial. And then uh, one of my guests suggested I write for anthologies. And now it's like 15 anthologies later. <laughs> so now I feel ready <laughs> right. to that book because I've done 15 anthologies, you know, in the past uh, year and a half, uh, uh, two years. So, yeah, you create the time, like with anything else, like working out or, or researching something of interest. Uh, uh, you just make some time, 15 minutes. That works a lot of times. Uh, and before you know yeah. it, you've done a lot of it and you've done enough of it where you're not doing it. And you can't escape that <laughs> understanding. Right. That's exactly what it is, that people make the time for what matters. So to say that you want to do it, don't give me the, the empty words. Just if you want to do it, sit down and do it. It's You can be anything and do anything if you just set your mind to it. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, when Thomas first uh, met me, I had a, a television show called For the Barbarian, and I worked mm-hmm. in work development. Uh, uh, I was running welfare to work programs and doing all sorts of uh, you know, things. And my message there was, was pretty simple. Um, it was, if I can be a barbarian uh, and wander on New York City in furs and leathers with a sword on my back, and be doing things, uh, and, and like I was on databases like Thor the Barbarian Consultant, uh, Thor the Barbarian Superhero of the Human Services uh, at PBS in uh, New Jersey, that if I could do this, and this is crazy, <laughs> imagine what you could do if your dreams are more conventional. And uh, back then, that was a very powerful message because uh, people were watching me do this on my cable show and in conferences and things like that. So it really had them think, you know, what, what can I do? I, I don't want to wear fur and leather and uh, walk around with a sword, but I want to write books or I want to be an actor. And so it made it easier for the person to take that step. And uh, uh, it sounds like you're, you're on the same mission. Yes, very much. That. Um like with my job, one of the things that's, that's really, really important to me is that I'm empowering college students to get the soft skills they need to succeed. I have them sit in on interviews with me when we bring in new students. I have them help with evaluations. I have them looking at learning outcomes. I have them doing resumes and cover letters if they want to continue employment just because they need that practice. They need to know how to communicate with other people on all levels. And to have the ability to just try something and to know that if they fail, we're going to support them. And I do the same thing with my faith group that go ahead and try. Maybe you're not the best at speaking. Maybe you're not the best at teaching, but you have something that we don't. And we want you to share that with the rest of us. So it's, it's very, very important to me that we make sure that all people have that opportunity. That is incredibly awesome, and I wish we had more time, but we're nearing the end of today's adventure. I'm definitely going to invite you back. Uh, we just scratched the surface uh, today and uh, got to meet you. Um, how can folks uh, get in contact with you, um, gain access to your writing and your other activities? Um, I have uh, Amazon is the best way under, under my name, Carlene Tura Clark. Um, if they're looking for our spiritual group, that's the Spiral Tree Tradition. And if you just do www.spiraltreetradition.com, you will find me on that page as Thora Elvonia Ashiana. I am the Grand Forks leader of the Order of the Aurora. 
Um, I have the, the Etsy shops. So if you just bring up Etsy and then type in hire an adventure after that, um, Facebook, I have do the slash a ranger's homecoming and you can find my website there as well. I put links to some of these in the, the description with uh, today's show. Uh, I will seek out uh, the rest and uh, add them as well. Or if I leave something up, please feel free to add it in the description so people can access it. And uh, thank you so very much for coming on the show and uh, for sharing your tale. And it's an amazing and empowering tale. So keep on uh, telling it. Keep on living the dream. Thank you for having me tonight. Okay. Thank you to everybody who's been listening. We're going to take a very brief break uh, to listen to Dave the Bard's Cauldron Born, and then we'll be back. Hey. 
lines Searching for patterns and looking for signs Your life of construction one day you will see Through the illusion and into the dream the cauldron's brew and magic she will give to you. You will dance in the eye of the storm, your Keridwen's children, the cauldron born. So we stand on this hill, our shadows are coming. The powers of earth, sea and sky A dragon and fairy in shades of the night We call to our ancestors of blood and bone Of womb and tomb and standing stone Lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spell Deep within The cauldron's brew and magic she will give to you. You will dance in the eye of the storm, your Keridwen's children, the cauldron born. Oh, lady, stir your cauldron well, chant your words and sing your spell. Deep within this darkened hall, hear the goddess Keridwen call. Come and taste. Of the cauldron's brew and magic she will give to you. You will dance in the eye of the storm, your Keridwen's children, the cauldron born. You're the cauldron to present the Real News Revealed, presented by Nick Curdo. And uh, Nick tonight will share with us some things that are truly scary. Greetings and welcome, Nick. How are you? Well, thank you very much, Hercules. A pleasure to be here on this very special night. 
Yes, and I'm greatly looking forward uh, to hearing the list that you've compiled. You're always so very informative and uh, um, thought-provoking, so I expect that tonight I'll have many things to meditate upon. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, thought-provoking is my job. That is one of my jobs. <laughs> I wear that hat proudly and uh, <laughs> did a little research, and I found some very surprising things about uh, tonight's Halloween evening, and I wanted to share that first with the uh, sure. this book podcast. Uh, so um, let me go right ahead then. And the holiday of Halloween began, and this is surprising to me, about 2,000 years ago. Now, that, that was a shock. I had no idea it was that old. Um, it was a holiday that was celebrated by the Celts and the people that populated Ireland and Scotland in the Isle of Man. Uh, the holiday that they celebrated wasn't called Halloween. Uh, it was called uh, Saw One, S-A-W-W-N-E, and was the festival that marked the end of the Celtic year. Now, the Celtic calendar was basically divided into two main categories, the dark and the light, winter being the dark, and summer being the light. Now, October 31 was the Mata, M-A-R-T-A, transition, which was a night that the Celts saw the beginning of a very tedious hold between our world and the world of the spirit and the fairies, known as EEC. The Celts would put out food and drink so the spirits would be happy and accept it as a gift to ensure the, a prosperous new year ahead. How, how interesting was that? <laughs> my, my dug that, up. that is that is very interesting, and I, I can add to this one. Um, the uh, Celts uh, thought of this, as you said, as the end of one year and the beginning of the next. And on that uh, night, the veil between worlds was thinnest, so it allowed your ancestors. Uh, who'd passed on to visit you, as well as uh, non-human intelligences like uh, fairies and so forth, uh, you know, to interact with you. So um, that's a tradition that exists in uh, many cultures. And uh, the uh, the Tuatha Day, which means the tribe of gods, um, the Dagda, who was the Celtic uh, Hercules, and the Morrigan, who was the Celtic Athena, uh, they oh. celebrated their union on this day because he represented the light and she represented the darkness. So it was kind of like a union of light and dark. Uh, it was when the worlds became one instead of being separate uh, things. So uh, um, it, it was indeed, as you say, a very auspicious uh, day of the year. Uh, and uh, it could be a time of very good fortune. So all the scary connotations uh, came uh, later, <laughs> much later. Interesting. I love this stuff. I really do. And um, some Celts would dress up, as you know, in costume, and this would mm -hmm. uh, be a means of protecting themselves from any vengeful spirits that might attack them on this particular night. Uh, it was also a time when departed souls of the people themselves would come back to our world. So that was another part of this. Uh, one tradition mm -hmm. that they had was to leave an extra chair in front of a friendly fireplace in their home or at the feast where they would leave 
many empty chairs to welcome their relatives who were back with them on that night. In the 19th century, the Roman Catholic Church tried to uh, tamper uh, uh, with the uh, pagan rituals and, uh, that were going on, and they figured out a way to do it. Uh, one of the ways was uh, to do it was to supplant holidays of their own into the pagan holidays. And so Samhain, that's S-A-W-I-N, was changed uh-huh. to the Hollow Tide which was a three-day festival. Um, it started with all hollow sphere on October 31, followed by a hollows day, which was November 1. Uh, that is also known as All Saints Day. And finally, on November 2nd, All Souls Day. So that's, that was the plan that was uh, put forth. Now, starting in the 15th century, um, a tradition known as Solin, which is S-O-L-I-N-G, started, which was when people went door to door, uh, usually talked in verses as they went, or they sang songs. And uh, in exchange for this, they were given what they call soul cakes, S-O-U-L cakes, which was food and that was meant to appease the dead. Mm-hmm. A household that gave them soul cakes, and they were very special-looking little cakes, were given good fortune for the coming year. And that's why, that's why they did it. Now, Hallow's Eve, October 31, which was Saul 1, S-A-L, and then the number 1, for the Celts. And now, this still was a time of the uh, recognition of, if not a celebration of, the supernatural, and the time when the dead walked the earth. It was thought of people that had died that year that their spirits would still wander in a kind of a limbo state, and they were not to ascend to heaven or descend to into hell until November 1. Now, I never knew that. that that's <laughs> amazing. Now, in the 16th century... Uh, there was a tradition that started in Scotland and was also practiced in parts of Ireland known as Grising. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's spelled G-U-I-S-I-N-G. And this was similar to Soling with the addition that the people would dress up in costumes and go door to door asking for food and money. And in parts of the British Isles, it was known as Mumming, which is M-O-M-M-I-N-G. Now, these traditions held generation after generation. It was in the 19th century uh, when there was a big influx of Irish as well as Scottish immigrants, both in the United States as well as in Canada, that these traditions of gersing were adopted in North America, and slowly, bit by bit, the custom caught on. Now we're going to go to the holiday of Halloween, which was very popular in Victorian times. Now, this is also so interesting to me. is This was the late 18th as well as the 1900s. The Victorians were very much into bringing back old traditions. They really loved to do that. Now, there was very much an interest in the occult as well as spiritualism for the Victorians, and they would have parties that largely 
And get this, <laughs> were for young adults and that had many games that were part of a celebration that were centered around the young, and get this, and romance. Uh, for really? instance, when bobbing for apples, I think we've all done that at one point when we were yeah. kids, uh, the person that got the apple and could bite into it was going to be the next person to be married. That's what they were thinking. Uh, I don't know how the bobbing for apples, I didn't get that part yet, but uh, I'll look into that. It's, it's kind of a, interesting. But that's what the Victorians, how they used that, that game to uh, help attract uh, uh, people to each other uh, for the idea of marrying. Now, trick-or-treat, interestingly, was not practiced during the Victorian period. Um, for a long time, adults were kind of flabbergasted about that custom. They didn't understand it. Uh, there weren't a lot of rules centered around it, so people didn't know uh, when it was happening or why those kids were coming to their doors asking for money and for food. Uh, what firmed up the custom, and I love this part. This is a real surprise. Uh, what firmed up the custom was that the group of kids in Philadelphia in 1950 who donated all the money that they had collected on Halloween night to UNICEF. Now, this wow. became an annual tradition with UNICEF until 1965 when they had amassed so much money by their efforts, the children on Halloween, that they won the, here it comes, the Nobel Peace Prize of that same year. Isn't that something? That is amazing. I did not know those things. Now, and, here, and here's what that did. Um, Trick-or-treating for UNICEF became a much bigger thing than all of a sudden trick-or-treating didn't have the mysterious aspect anymore. It was okay. Everyone was doing it, and everybody expected children to be on the streets in the various neighborhoods on Halloween night going door to door. And this is the last part of this. The Halloween is such a combination of different traditions and different customs. But there are two things that remain consistent since the very beginning over 2,000 years ago. And that is that it was a time where the supernatural and superstitions were recognized and thought about. And the second, it was a time to celebrate and share food. And so that's that's a little part of what Halloween is all about. Yes, most certainly uh, so. And it, it's tied to autumn and the autumn harvest and uh, the cornucopia, which is the horn of plenty. Uh, so it has uh, a lot of uh, these associations, as you shared, and also in antiquity, um, things that had died were planted in the ground where they came back to life again. So there was also the promise of rebirth. You know, if you planted seeds in the ground, they sprouted and became plants, which in turn uh, gave forth uh, uh, new seeds and, and the cycle repeats itself. So it was very reassuring uh, to our ancestors and to, to people now, I guess, too, to know that in nature, things that seem to pass uh, come back, you know, and that there are cycles of being and non-being. So a lot of the ancient mysteries were uh, focused on that particular concept as well. Absolutely. And if I had a farm and family and we needed to 
Are you there, Nick? We're experiencing technical uh, difficulties. Uh, hold on one second. I will put on a brief song until we're able to get uh, Nick back. Here's Isis Unveiled by Dave the Bard. This is Hercules Invictus, and we are all learning from Nick Curdo. He's done a lot of research into Halloween, and Halloween has a much older history than most people suspect, and it has survived with uh, only minor variations throughout the millennia, and that is uh, incredibly awesome. It's a, it's a really interesting story, and like I said, I had no idea that Halloween went back 2,000 years. That was a very big surprise when I started looking into this. Now, you know, when people uh, are pretty much on their own, they have a family, they have a, a place where they're growing their own food and um, trying to survive. And, of course, you would do anything you could to ensure uh, the, the, uh, the fact that your crops would be uh, uh, good for the next year, that they probably could be even better. So uh, doing what you could um, – not only physically in the planting, but also mentally and spiritually, trying to kind of hedge the bet, if you will, to make Uh the next crop the best crop uh, of all. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, And I remember when uh, I was in Greece as a child, uh, they had people dressing up like uh, satyrs. Satyrs are the half goat, half human beings in Greek mythology. And there was a ceremony like a bonfire jumping. And uh, at night there were uh, you know, young men mostly dressed as satyrs. Uh, and if they found you in the streets, they'd uh, beat you up. <laughs> you know, oh. with sticks. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So people tell you not to go out, you know, and I was watching it from uh, the upstairs window of my grandparents' house. And it was only much later when I got much older and I researched that I found out that this ceremony that I'd witnessed uh, has been going on since uh, prehistory. And that the, the mm. ancient Greeks left records of it being an ancient custom. And here we were back in the, in the 20th century, and it was still going strong. So it's amazing how these things, once they take root, uh, just seem to perpetuate themselves. 
Oh, that that is so true. And you know, I love to know uh, sometimes when we we're just talking and we say an expression, and then you stop and say, "Well, why did I say that? What 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 caused me to say that? That doesn't really make sense." But it's because we've we've learned some of these expressions that were handed down generation to generation, that in some cases have to do with that generation, but have very little to do with us now. But we still use those those very quirky little expressions all the time in our writings and in our language when we speak to each other. And sometimes you have to stop and say, "Why did I say that? Where where was that from?" Uh huh. Even with things and that like goes on a lot. And uh, there's there's some books on the subject that I think that's fascinating uh, because we really, in a lot of cases. We just assume and pick assume and pick up things from language from our parents and from our relatives and our friends, and we don't really know the background of those expressions or in this case a holiday you're you're absolutely right, and even things like sunrise and sunset we've known for hundreds of years uh, that the sun does not rise or set in reality, and yet we still use those uh terms. Uh, and we know what they mean, uh, even though, again, they're erroneous and our reality no longer supports uh, those beliefs. But did the expression survive? You know, I got to also just uh, introduce a sidebar here that um, I couldn't help but, but think about. And that is when the Roman Catholic Church decided to take a pagan holiday and try to uh, erase it, remove it by planting another holiday in exactly the same day. And they did use that quite a bit. And another example of that is our, our December 25th, which was we thought was the, the birth of Jesus. And we celebrate that. But as it turns out, if you go way, way back, December 25th was a pagan, a big pagan holiday. Yes. And so, the Catholic Church, again, got that in its sights and said, what can we do? And uh, and they thought, why don't we celebrate the birth of Jesus on that pagan holiday and try to uh, be be much showier and bigger and better, and, and that pagan holiday will go away. And so that was the plan, and that's what they did. Now, the interesting thing is that when I originally found the Arantia book, or the Arantia book found me. I was interested in the date of Christmas. And what the Arantia book says, and this is so interesting, is that Jesus was born on August 21 at noon. And I thought, well, that's incredible. I knew it wasn't uh, December 25th, but really, that in, in August. And some of the modern research in the last few years has pointed to late summer that they believe that Jesus was born. And so mm-hmm. the Urantia book may be dead on, uh, possibly on that date of uh, uh, August 21st at noon. Uh, there's, a chap- there's a whole chapter in the book uh, that talks about this in detail. And if anybody's interested, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Uh, you can go to the website of org, which is U-R-A-N-T-I-A-B-O-O-K dot O-R-G. And it's, uh, they have the whole book online, 
as well as a recording of the whole book online, and you can look that up, and I guarantee you the story of the birth of Jesus, you'll be on the edge of your chair. It is so an incredible story, and there's a lot of detail to back it up. So I, I had to put that sidebar in. No, that, it's an important sidebar. I can even add a little bit to the December 25th thing. Um, back in the days of the Western Roman Empire, which uh, we call Byzantium now or the Byzantine Empire, um, right. they had a lot of religions that were solar religions. You know, they had to deal with the sun symbolically. So you see this in Christianity with uh, Jesus and his 12 disciples. You had Hercules and his 12 labors and, and so forth. So these were basically the sun moving through the zodiac. So they were all fighting with each other. There were like religious wars like we're having now with different sects attacking each other and uh, uh, trying to pass legislation against each other and so forth. So uh, Constantine, who was the emperor at the time, he realized that since they were all solar religions, uh, that it's better if he gave them something common. So what he did was he made the holidays for the solar religions the same. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't have dates of their own, he smacked them on there. So Christianity he saw as a solar religion um, because uh, Jesus Christ was the son. He was the savior. He had the 12 disciples and you know, uh, so forth, uh, uh, dying and being reborn. So he decided that uh, that's those are the dates of uh, Christmas and uh, Easter. And this way there was consistency and less infighting. And everybody got to celebrate their holidays, even though they called them different things and had uh, different beliefs uh, uh, attached to them. <laughs> well, we all love holidays. It's a, it's a yeah. time out. Usually from your job, uh, whether you like your job or not, it's always good to have a day off. And, of course, uh, there's many holidays of uh, various religions and, and, and faiths. And uh, um, you, uh, you, when you live in a city, especially a big city like New York or, you know, Chicago or Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, and you're, you're there with a mix of a lot of different people from very different backgrounds and I find it wonderful to have so many uh, different kinds of people with different backgrounds that celebrate their different holidays. And you can easily access these various celebrations if you're in a big city. And uh, I, I have actually been aggressive about doing that. And I recommend that to anybody who really wants to broaden their horizons because Going to the Chinese New Year's, for instance, uh -huh. or, or, or going to a temple when they're when they're having their different holidays, uh, uh, going to a Christian church, or uh, going uh, reading a Unitarian uh, unit, uh, unit, uh, Unitarian church, of course, or the Arantia group that celebrates that celebrates uh, Jesus on the uh, birthday on uh, uh, August 21st. Okay. These are so interesting and. Believe me, you could have every single month and have a, a fair amount of celebrations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's and fine. That's okay. Yes, it is. And like you, I used to be different churches. You know? Life uh, should be enjoyed. Oh, it should be, and it should be celebrated with other people, even if the other people see the world as a different place than you see it. Right, and, and, and it's, it washes off on you. You, you see... You see a different point of view, and you and you see 
how their culture works, usually that involves not only ceremonies, but sometimes it involves different kinds of foods, some foods that you've never heard of or never ever have, have sampled. And uh, it's, so, it's so interesting to, to do that and to partake in other celebrations of other people of other faiths. Uh, it, it's, it's really a joy to do that and uh, highly recommended for everybody. You really open up your world and, and you, you see people um, a different way because you see a lot more layers of what they're about. And that creates understanding. And Hercules, I'm sure that you'll agree with me that that also creates the, the atmosphere of peace, peace yes. on earth. And we certainly need that more than ever. Would you not, would you not agree with that? Oh, I agree with it 100%. Does the Urantia book have a particular ritual uh, or, or a different observance for uh, Christmas, the birthday of uh, Christ in August? It, 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 it does have um, other uh, reports of other cultures and, and uh, associated um, uh, information about that. So it's, one, it's not the primary source of the Arantia book, but they do go into it to some degree. And the history of our planet I couldn't put it down. It, it, it was more layered and more detailed than any other book I had ever, ever picked up. And I learned so much. I have new insights into, for instance, the Eskimos, the Eskimos and, and, and that culture. And, um, of course, Africa and what was going on down there. And it goes on and on. And you just very different view that you probably haven't ever had before. So the Arantia book, if anything, is a one surprise after the next, one revelation after the next. And that's why it's such a draw to people who are seeking truth, they're seeking what's really going on. And um, it, it's, it's, it's quite, a, it's a masterwork. It's it's it is big as you know it's it's over a little yeah. over two thousand pages, and um, it is in four different sections. And what I recommend anybody who's never had the experience of uh, reading the book is to simply go to the table of contents. Again, that website I gave urantiabook.org. Uh, you can then see the table of contents and look and see what it is and find out what areas, what chapters mo are most interesting for you and go mm -hmm. to them. Go to them because I think that will that will whet your appetite for sure. Uh, that Almost what are they so. saying about Adam and Eve? What are they saying about uh, the universal father, God? What are they saying about other spiritual callings? Um, what, are, what are they saying about the dawn of man and, and, and how we progressed? Uh, it, it goes on and on, and um, like I said, it's like potato chips. Once you have a sample of that, I guarantee you, you'll be you'll be you'll be reading the book. Yes, I. And the, that's the a book good thing. Amazing. That's a very good thing. Yes, it is. I just put oh. links to the book in both of the announcements uh, for uh, uh, your segment today. And this way, people who are following us on Facebook can visit uh, um, easily. Uh, there is also on YouTube uh, a series of uh, videos that have uh, the different uh, uh, 
uh, headings uh, verbatim and also summarized. Ah. So, so uh, this for is, those, this, this is uh, now that winter's coming and we have a little more time inside to do some reading and research. This is a very good time to start that process, you know. Oh, most certainly. So I agree with you 100%. I was thinking next year, how about um, we do some of these uh, rituals and celebrations on the air and invite people to participate? And uh, this way we oh, can oh, share that is, with other people. That's a great, that's a very, very good idea. I think that would be something of interest to many people. And it gives them a taste of other cultures. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Well, so we, we have plenty of time to plan it. Uh, August is still a ways away. And uh, um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, August is also a month of special importance to the cosmic uh, Hercules. Um, his main holiday is on the 12th or the 13th of the month. Um, and he shares that with uh, um, the mother of heaven and the mother of earth, who both also have their holidays uh, during that week. Uh, but some people say he was born on August the 4th. So the month of August is very sacred uh, uh, to that aspect of uh, Olympianism. And uh, oh. some of the mysteries took place uh, around that time as well. So I'd love to share some of this stuff uh, too. And uh, we can invite uh, Michael and Diane to share uh, from Gabriel's Worldwide Religion of Love or the Sixth Revelation or Maitreya's uh, uh, Magisterial Mission, you know, some of the things that they've been doing. Uh, we can invite our Wiccan friends and uh, our Buddhist friends. So it, it should be a great uh, thing. No, that, that's, that's, a, that's an amazingly good idea. And um, it just seems, you know, the moment you said that, Hercules, it seems like the next step, like the next level yes. would be something like that. Almost it just certainly sounds sir. right. Yeah, it really, it really does. So that that's a great idea. Also, you know, you were talking before, um, and you were talking about uh, numbers to some degrees, like the twelve, this, the ten, that. Yeah. Um, there's certain numbers, like one, three, as another one, nine is one, ten, of course, twelve. Um, there, there's certain numbers that have all kinds of ringing in history and you can go right. through many, many religions uh, and um, the different, different countries and certain numbers seem to keep coming up. Do you find that to be? I find that to be true as well. And I know a, uh, I know a numerologist. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, okay. I, I, I kind of lost that. Uh, I know a, a, a professional numerologist. Uh, I met him at uh, a UN meeting. Um, there's little meetings they have, and I get to go to some of them. And um, he, he spoke uh, a, few, a few times uh, at the uh, Disclosure Network New York meetings, and it was fascinating because he knows, you name it, about numbers, and he knows it. And there's so many numbers that have amazing meanings or layered meanings in different in different sections like the 12 apostles like the, it goes on um, so it, it's just another fascinating area that we, we should we should investigate at some point oh definitely you you can invite him uh, on to a, a future show 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, oh, he's he's definitely um, on the list. Um, uh, in fact, he is going to uh, be on a Disclosure Network uh, with Nick coming up in the new year. Oh, fantastic! I'm looking forward to my. He's coming already in accepted the date. I believe it's uh, February. In one of our February meetings, uh, podcast, he's going to be there, and uh, he's he's really an amazing guy with huge amounts of knowledge on this subject. Uh, it's 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 really you you can you can listen to his lecture all day. It's so fascinating. So and he I'm, accepted I'm to, to be on a podcast. Yeah, now, so that's coming. That's coming up. Our time together is nearing its end, and I want to make sure the folks have all the different ways uh, uh, to uh, contact you. And then I want to invite you on a new adventure that I mentioned a long time ago, and it's finally happening now. So uh, we'll do oh. the contact information first, just so we have time for that. Well, okay, I'll give my uh, my contact. Is that all right? Yes. Okay, let me do that. Um, uh, if anybody wants to email me on um, the Rancher book or uh, more on the uh, different, uh, particularly the Halloween uh, information, if they have other information they'd want to share, certainly would be interested. Um, go ahead and email me, and I'll give you my email address. Uh, that is N I C K. N Y N Y, the number one, in other words, the figure one, at gmail.com. That's Nick, N Y N Y one, at gmail.com. You'll get right to me. And um, once again, the uh, Urantia uh, web, uh, website, which is amazing, with the whole book right there, you can either read it or listen to it. And that is U R A N T I A. B O O K dot O R G. That will get you right there. It's an incredible website, and they've recently been up the design of it and made it even better. It's it's an amazing website, beautifully wow. executed and designed. So that's another one they can go to. That is incredibly awesome. And again, I put the links in the uh, uh, announcement for today's segment. So if you're uh, listening uh, through uh, Facebook or if your portal is Facebook, everything is there. All you need to do is uh, click. Uh, before we close for today, and thank you for another awesome show, Nick. Is uh, oh, um, my pleasure. To the pleasure. Another Argonaut, Astrid, has been putting together a show called The Four Elements, and the idea behind the show is, uh, you know, basically to look at like water and to look at uh, uh, soil and fuel or food and the air with the pollution and to start uh, taking organized action. So since you have the project Lemonade, um, I'd like to invite you to be part of that. We're doing water first. So uh, I, I would absolutely be honored. Uh, certainly count me in. Absolutely would. So fantastic. When we start those, you're going to be one of the panelists and we're going to define the problem uh, where you know, everyone's going to share what they're doing and we're going to see how we can help each other. And then also using traditional means of uh, contacting our uh, government, our politicians, uh, hooking up with organizations or supporting organizations. This way we, uh, as Argonauts, we could do something really powerful and really impactful uh, because uh, these things need to get done. So, We'll do what we can to make them happen. 
Absolutely will. Absolutely will. And there's certainly I know for a fact that there's listeners out there who want to get involved in some of these projects too, and we will be giving information on how to best do that. Awesome. Thanks again, Nick. You're awesome. Um, happy Samhain, happy Halloween, happy Celtic New Year, and I'll talk to you very soon. Excellent. Much love to everyone. Good night. Same here. Good night. Uh, we're going to listen to uh, one of Dave the Bard's songs, The Pipes of Pan, and then we'll be back with uh, our next segment, Retro Sci-Fi Cinema, with Brian Walker of Brian's Show. Thank you. 
Good evening, Hercules. Uh, I wanted to take uh, a minute out just to wish you and Athena a happy anniversary. I, I know today uh, is your anniversary, which I think is that's amazing that your anniversary is on Halloween. That was a, a, a very wisely chosen date, in my opinion. It's our favorite holiday, so we figure why not? <laughs> so we have a lot to celebrate and a lot of different ways to celebrate it. And Thank you know, you. this is my—I know I've said this a million times, but this is my favorite time of year. Uh, I love fall and I love Halloween. Um, I love Thanksgiving and Christmas as well, and, and it all gets kind of lumped in, you know, to, to the same—you uh, know—two-month span. And uh, uh-huh. this is my time of year. Awesome. How how did you spend uh, today? Actually, unfortunately, I spent the day at work, <laughs> but um, I, I had my uh, annual uh, Halloween party uh, on Saturday night. Um, and uh, it, back in the day, we used to turn our garage into a pretty effective horror house, uh, a haunted house, that is. But we haven't done that for the past couple of years. It's kind of hard to, to pull off. Um, but we have, I hope to return to that, uh, you know, one day soon. We have, a, we have a lot of nice props. Um, and some of them are you know, genuinely you know, pretty scary, um, and spent a lot of money on, on this stuff uh-huh. over the years as well. Uh, and I made quite a few props too, um, you know, using everything from plumbing supplies to, um, uh, oscillating, you know, uh, oscillating fans. You know, all, you can, you know, if you've, uh, uh, if you have a little bit of know-how, you can, you can make a pretty effective horror house, a haunted house, that is. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, my wife uh, has like a werewolf skeleton outside, and she has ghosts. And uh, our front yard is uh, really decorated. And we're thinking next year to go all out and to. Um, you know, do something very uh, thematic and evocative. Uh, and they have Cerberuses now that you can get in a Spirit of Halloween and other stores. Uh, yes. So uh, mm-hmm. we're thinking about uh, getting one of those and just uh, um, sprucing it up a bit so it's not so generic. Uh, so next year should be really awesome uh, with uh, Halloween. 
Well, uh, we had to decontent our uh, front yard uh, this evening because uh, we're we're experiencing some high winds uh, with this yes. uh, front that's uh, moving through this part of the country. And uh, we went out uh, about an hour or so ago and pulled everything in because I was afraid all of my stuff was going to fly off. <laughs> it's throughout the country, too. California, one of our hosts uh, lives in California. Uh, and yesterday the uh, wind was so powerful that uh, um, she wasn't sure she could maintain the connection. So I, I took over the show. And here in Jersey, in southern Jersey, uh, there have been problems with uh, power outages and also extreme uh, uh, storm-like conditions uh, as well. Um, and that affected one of our hosts last week. So uh, uh, this sounds like more than like local to the Northeast Coast. Well, it, it's affecting millions of people, um, you know, from, from, the, uh, from the south up to the mid-Atlantic states. Um, and uh, I, we've had, so far, we've had a really easy fall. I mean, we've had uh, very mild temperatures, and uh, all of that's supposed to change tomorrow, unfortunately. Oh, what's tomorrow? <laughs> I haven't had a chance well, to check. Uh, for, well, for example, it was about 71 degrees here today, and tomorrow it's supposed to be 45. <laughs> so, that's quite so, a drop. And we... Well, and we and we've not had a frost yet, and apparently our first frost is going to be either uh, tonight or tomorrow night. Wow, wow. Well, it's, it's but anyway, we're not here to talk about the weather. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I hope everyone stays warm and uh, dry and uh, safe uh, during all these changes that we're experiencing. Uh, and yes, uh, today here. you're going to reveal the origins. Of the Walking Dead. Yes, um, one of the thing, one of the movies that I wanted to talk about tonight uh, is a favorite of mine. I, I first saw it. I, I think I was a freshman in college. Um, it's the original uh, Night of the Living Dead, uh, which was released in October of 1968, and it was shot uh, very close to where I live right now. Uh, it was shot in. Uh, the Pittsburgh area. Actually, it was um, uh, shot just outside of Pittsburgh uh, in, in a uh, rural area, about 30 miles uh, away from the city. And it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, I've probably seen it a hundred times, maybe even more than that. Uh, I watched it again uh, on Saturday, as a matter of fact, uh, just because I, I love it so much. And I wanted to talk about uh, Night of the Living Dead, the original, uh, but I also wanted to explore its origins and take a look at um, the, you know, the film, it, its precursors, the films that came before it. Now, have you ever seen the film? Uh, yes, many times. It was one of my favorites uh, for very many years, uh, and then I got all zombied out. <laughs> so I haven't seen it in a while. Oh, well, understood. Um, and one of the reasons that I think that so many people have seen it is that uh, practically since the day it was released, it's been in the public domain. Uh, mm-hmm. when, it was, uh, when it was originally released, it had a different title, 
And um, the title it had was very similar to another film. So at the last minute, they switched the title. And when they did that, they forgot to include the copyright um, Mm. on it. And it entered the public domain, like I said, immediately. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people, you have seen it. Uh, As I recall, it was it was one of the first movies that I purchased on VHS when I was a teenager. Um, and it was because it was inexpensive. If you mm-hmm. remember um, early on, you know, in, in the early 1980s, a, a commercially produced VHS tape, no matter what the content was, was a very expensive proposition. It might've yeah. been 40, 50, $60, which back then was a lot of money. Um, and I, I think the copy of Night of Living Dead I bought was maybe $10 or $15, which was you know, very cheap. Mm-hmm. And that's when I first saw it. You know, I, I had never seen the movie before, and I'd always wanted to see it. Um, when I was uh, a kid, a teenager, I used to uh, collect uh, Super 8 millimeter film. And uh, one of the companies that uh, sold uh, Super 8 uh, films for home use, which was called Niles Video, was out of uh, Illinois, um, uh-huh. had copies uh, had copies of Night of the Living Dead that they used to sell. Uh, but back then, that was, mm, I want to say, probably 130 or $140 to get the whole film on Super 8 sound. And a lot of, there again, a lot of money. And uh, I'd, I'd read the descriptions for several years of the film, but had never seen it. And when I got a, a VCR, I think I was about 17 or so, um, I'd say 1982, 1983, uh, I was able to buy a copy of it. And the, the film, I mean, it, it's made such an impression upon me. Uh, at the time, I did not live uh, in the Pittsburgh area. I lived much farther away. Um, and I certainly didn't move to this area because uh, because of, of the origin of the movie or anything. It was just happenstance that I wound up here. Um, but it, it's a fascinating movie. Uh, I, I love it for you know, so many different reasons. One of the reasons I like the film is that um, there was a local Pittsburgh horror host called uh, Chili Billy. His name was Bill Cardell. Um, he, he is in the film. Oh wow! And uh, I, I just think that that's a, that's an awesome tie-in, uh, you know, to have you know Pittsburgh's horror host, who was very popular, you know, here in this general area, uh, making an appearance in the movie. And he was a horror host in Pittsburgh for roughly twenty years. I would say from wow. the early nineteen the early nineteen sixties to the early nineteen eighties. That's a long time. It is, and um, you know, again, it's one of my favorite movies. I love the I love the storyline. I think it's uh, very intriguing. Um, it's it's fascinating in that you know, during that time period, you have an African American as the protagonist in the film, um, and this just something you didn't see in a lot of films, particularly a horror film, you know, back then. And uh the the actor in that role, Dwayne Jones, um was was classically trained. He had been, you know, a, a college professor. He had taught theater. Um 
he's actually if you watch if you watch his performance, he's a very good actor. Unfortunately, he didn't make uh, you know that many film appearances, um, but but um, you know, the the few that you know, his his first movie was I mean he knocked it out of the park. I mean he did a really good job, and he'll always be he, yes, he, he passed away a long time passed away a long time ago, but he'll always be remembered uh, for that film. And um, it's just a great story. Oh yes, it, it, it certainly is, and it uh, etched itself uh, into our uh, collective uh, pop cultural consciousness, uh, and it's been very widely imitated. It kind of set the standard for everything that was to come later. And it's it's kind of it's it's fascinating to see how quickly uh, societal norms break down, <laughs> you know, during a crisis. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, that. That is not fiction. <laughs> I think no. those norms can break down extremely quickly in much, much less of a crisis. Um, you, uh, d- to be honest, um, you, but go, going, you, taking a look at films uh, that led up to Night of the Living Dead. I, 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 I love science fiction films, um, especially ones that you know bring some elements of horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, into them, I mean, uh, you know, uh, science fiction films from even the 1930s are, are just fascinating to see, uh, and in the 50s they really took off. Um, you had some some beautifully done um, films such as Forbidden Planet, uh, which yes. I think is be- beautifully shot and amazingly done. Uh, but there, there are so many others. I mean, uh, one of my partner's favorite movies is The Thing, the original one with uh, James Arness. You know, he, he's the alien monster uh, in it, and that really, it truly is a chilling movie, and it, it's it, it's very well done. It, there, there's nothing uh, low budget or cheap about it. I mean, it, it, it's a great film. Um, and then um, it was the day the Earth stood still, which is also you know a, a fantastic film, where you have uh, you know an an alien as the monster, so to speak. Although you know the, the day the Earth stood still kind of turns that trope around, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, man is is kind of the monster in it, in it, you know more so than you know the alien. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I find kind of interesting about 1950s horror films. Um, oftentimes, uh, it was either some sort of response to the atomic age, or uh, you know, the the monster or the antagonist uh, was some sort of uh, alien being. Mm-hmm. And you and you see that in a lot of horror films. Um, one of my favorites is Them. Uh, Yes, with, uh, the giant, the, the giant bugs. Uh, that's another film that I think is very well done. Uh, there's some terrific performances in it, and you, know, it's kind of a response to the whole, you know, atomic age. You know, what what has man created? Um, and you see a lot of that in 1950s films. Yeah, but as we moved into the 1960s, I think we, I think we as a society began seeing that um, 
we didn't necessarily need to look at otherworldly things or um, man's creations as the monster. We started looking at man as the monster. Yes. You know, and uh, a film that uh, we watched tonight uh, in preparation for our podcast uh, is The Last Man on Earth, um, which is based on Richard Matheson's uh, I Am Legend. And it's been yeah. shot a number of times, and it's had a it's had a number of different titles. Uh, the uh, version I watched, Last Man on Earth, is, stars Vincent Price, and it was shot in Italy. Um, just a few years later, uh, it was uh, shot as the Omega Man, which I can remember seeing when I was a kid. Me too. Uh, I think my parents took. I think my parents took me to see it. As a matter of fact, and, and it's with Charlton Heston as the star. It's very well done. But if you watch both movies, I mean, there's some incredible similarities. And then uh, Will Smith um, uh, did a version of it, which uh, has the has the title that Richard Matheson uh, gave his novel, which is I Am Legend. Yeah, but I, if you watch if you watch those movies, um, at first, you know, as you're watching them. And I, as I was watching The Last Man on Earth, and I, I'm guilty of this, I got caught up in it. Um, I was thinking of you know the the vampire beings um, as the monster, but at the end of the film, it's really Vincent Price. He's the last sort of living human being. He's actually the monster in it. He's he's the he's the one who's creating destruction. Mhm. And it's just interesting to to see how that film which was a low budget affair shot in Italy um you know, he's the uh the, the sole American actor in it although it is shot in English. Um it's just it, it's a fascinating film to watch. A lot of it is shot with his narration. You know, and, until you get into, I would say, like the second third of the film, it's practically all narrated, um, which was done for expediency. It was done for you know uh, cost, budget, and so forth. But it, what an effective film! And it's it's a great little sci-fi horror uh, film. Um, you can see it on uh, the Internet Archive and, and YouTube. It, it's readily available. The, the the copy that I watched of it is on YouTube, and it's a very nice, clean, crisp copy. The sound's good. Uh, the picture quality is amazing. I, I highly recommend it. it. It's a great film to watch uh, for this time of year. But it also sets the stage for a lot of the horror films that we see today, Um yeah, uh, uh, zombies. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, you, you sort of gotten tired of it because you see it so often yeah. uh, on television shows and, and in film. Um, but that was a pretty new concept, you know, in the 1960s. Um, you can watch films like uh, uh, Bela Lugosi's White Zombie from 1932, which is a, a, another one of my favorite films. It, 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 it's wonderfully done, um, but you know the, the the whole zombie trope was done differently. Yes, uh, in in, the, in that film. Um, moving on to George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, 
1968 version, his zombies looked and moved a lot like the vampires in The Last Man on Earth. And I believe that uh, Romero admitted um, you know, at some point uh, in an interview that that's what he had based you know, his, his um, zombies on. Well, it was the, the, kind of the look and the movement of the vampires in Last Man on Earth, and, and, if, uh, and comparing the comparing the two, they they look very similar. I I did not draw that parallel, so thank you for making that connection. Well, and, and if you if you take a look at it, 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 it it's very striking. Um, and uh, you know, Romero kind of, by doing that, he kind of sets the stage for what we think of as a zombie today. It's you know a, a slow, usually a, a weaker, slow-moving um, being that just has kind of one purpose. Uh, one, you, it, it wants to eat. You know, as and with a vampire like the vampires in Last Man on Earth, they just want to drink. Right. That, that is, there's their only goal. <laughs> there's nothing else uh that 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 they either need or want um and you know moving forward uh from that i mean, i think we've had some terrific um you know, horror films uh based on uh, zombies and romero did a follow up to that movie also shot in pittsburgh um about 10 years after night of the living dead uh was released called dawn of the dead and uh, in this area, Dawn of the Dead is probably at least as popular as Night of the Living Dead because so much of it was shot in a local mall called the Monroeville mm. Mall, which is uh, about 10, 15 miles uh, outside of downtown Pittsburgh. I thought that was brilliant when I first saw it, the, the fact that uh, people are so habituated to go uh, shopping at malls that uh, once they passed uh, whatever remained in their zombie shell uh, compelled them to go there. That, w- that was brilliant. It was, and it would be – sadly, George Romero you know, passed away a few years ago, but it would be interesting to see what he would make of the retail apocalypse that we've had now. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 would would you have zombies on the internet? You know, uh, that would be uh, an interesting way to look at things. But uh, I, I, I do I know what you, I know what you mean about um, how you know, all the zombies were kind of drawn to um, you know that mall, um, which at the time that that mall was actually a, a new structure. I think it was built uh, in the mid to late seventies. And it's actually still open, and I think it's actually still thriving. And it doesn't have a lot of closed storefronts like so many malls today. A lot of malls, yeah. Do they have anything in there intrinsic to the movie? Uh, because uh, uh, the mall was a character in that movie uh, more than a setting. Um, do they have anything in there to commemorate the fact that the movie was shot there? I have not been to the Monroeville Mall in five or six years, but okay. uh, they used to ha- they used to have a store in it that was largely devoted to the fact that Dawn of the Dead had been shot in it. And an acquaintance of mine who used to be an actress in a um, um, shot in Pittsburgh 
uh, local horror host um, uh, movie TV series. Uh, it was called It's Alive. It, it, it was in production for about four or five years, and it aired locally in Pittsburgh. Um, she does a lot of events at the Monroeville Mall, and she just did okay. one last weekend that was Halloween-themed. Something you'd appreciate. Uh, when uh, my wife and I had a store in a um, like a flea market-type place in Einon, Pennsylvania, uh, mm. When we were closing the store because we were moving uh, to New Jersey, um, mm-hmm. we had a zombie invasion <laughs> of the flea market. So whoever, came, yeah, people got discounts, um, but uh, if they were dressed in zombie costumes, um, we had like contests and they'd get like a bunch of stuff uh, for free. Uh, so uh, we ended our association with that place with a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Well, that's amazing. And um, uh, when It's Alive was still an ongoing concern in the Pittsburgh area, uh, the uh, producers and actors, um, you know, in the TV show would uh, host zombie walks in downtown Pittsburgh. And sadly, they they don't do it anymore. Uh, The show hasn't been on the air now for several years. it was a shame because it was uh, it was cleverly uh, written and acted, uh, and it was a lot of fun to watch. They did a lot. You know, they they couldn't afford to use anything that had copyright, so every all the movies that they showed were public domain. Mm. But that makes perfect sense, and um, I think that there's a lot of good entertainment out there uh, that's in the public domain. I agree, and uh, thank you for telling me about the uh, um, the Internet Archive because I've been able to find some hard to find movies uh, there. Um, can like I know people are using the Internet Archives, not so much the visual ones, but the print ones, uh, mm-hmm. and reprinting uh, books that are no longer uh, copywritten. Are people doing that with the movies in the cinematic archive as well? Uh, they are, and. Um... Although there's so much more work to be done, and a lot of the copies of the films are in relatively poor condition, they're probably probably old drive-in prints or old um, 16 millimeter prints that were you know, run to death at television stations back in the 60s and 70s. Um, some people have taken it upon themselves to find the best quality prints of these old public domain titles. And you can actually find good ones um, on the Internet Archive. Um, Like I said, it's still a work in progress. I I think the Archive, uh, they're always in need of donations. I've donated to them in the past. I should probably do it more often than I do uh, based on my usage of it, which is actually fairly heavy. Um, But uh, it's a wonderful ongoing concern and uh, I, I wish more people uh, would support it. I need to support it more myself as a matter of fact. I should contact them. Uh, maybe we can uh, put something up on uh, Facebook. Facebook has uh, ways of donating. I know when I was doing my library things, uh, people donated. Sometimes people donate like 100 or $200 um, to the, the programs in libraries. So that's certainly a worthwhile cause. 
It is. My only uh, concern is that you know, there are so many GoFundMes now, and uh, there are you know so many websites that, in order to survive, and, and I'm not I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but just in order to survive, you know, they need funds. I, I think some people are almost immune um, to it, and I, I wish we didn't have to rely on donations in order right. to you know, help restore and these are historical artifacts and uh some of them are in, in very poor condition and, and as you know so many films uh have been lost over the years um there's an alarming number of films made before 1950 which are there are only fragments left and for many of them there's just nothing uh right. existing of them, and we've lost films since then as well. And uh, I hate to see all that history uh, just going up in smoke. Yeah, th- that's why I, I I don't know what I can do, but I will put something up there periodically, and uh, every little bit uh, um, helps because those things deserve to be uh, uh, preserved. They're part of our heritage, and uh, they've certainly influenced us uh, uh, internally and externally as well. They have, and you know, if we want these films to um, be viewed by future generations, um, I hate to put it in these terms, but um, nobody's going to want to see a film with a lot of negative scratches and right. you know cracks, pops, and hisses. You want to see a good quality copy of it, and I, and I will admit that you know if I'm watching uh, an old movie that's in poor condition. I'm less likely to finish it, you especially if it's kind of hard to hear or it's hard to see or hard to watch. Uh, we need to jump in and you know, restore some of these old films. And you you see restoration efforts for classic films like, like um, well, let's say, Hitchcock uh, movies, uh, for example. But something in the public domain, uh, there's no there's no financial gain to be had. In restoring that film, you're just going. To, if you're going to, you know, try to restore it, it's just going to be for the love of the film or for the love of the history, you know, surrounding the film. And maybe you people like me, I'm, I'm getting. Um, not that I'm that old, I don't think I am, but uh, I'm starting to look retirement in the face. I'm, I'm planning on working for about uh, three or four more years. And uh, then I think I'm going to retire from what I'm doing now. And I'll work. I mean, I'll do, I'll certainly do something with my time, but I, I would like to maybe explore this avenue more of uh, uh, helping with um, you know, the restoration of some of these older public domain films that quite frankly, I love. I mean, I, I find them vastly entertaining and I just don't want to see them get lost. So that sounds incredibly awesome. <laughs> and uh, we can do a whole show to that because uh, right now we're approaching the last uh, five minutes. Um, and uh, um, you've given me a lot to uh, think about. Um, but in the interim, I will try to figure something out, like even if it's through Facebook donations, um, so that I get it up there maybe every time we have your show. Um, and uh, this way folks can uh, give a dollar or two or 10 or a hundred um, to help uh, preserve that effort to preserve our cinematic uh, heritage. 
And, you know, that would be amazing. And I, and I, I look, uh, I'm in the internet archive every day and it'd be wonderful to see you know, more people helping support it. And uh, although I don't use it extensively, I have used it on occasion to my benefit. Uh, so uh, I should start thinking about supporting it in some way uh, as well. Um, so awesome. We will start that uh, informally and uh, see where it goes. Um, your website is incredibly awesome. It is a shrine to uh, B-movies. Uh, can you tell folks how they can visit and how they can contact you? Oh, certainly. Um, it's easy to find. Uh, you can either go into one of the search engines and type in Brian's Drive-In Theater, and uh, I'm sure it'll pop up. Uh, otherwise, uh, you can just visit briansdriveintheater.com, and that's Brian with an I. And if you want to contact me, the best way to do it is through Facebook. And uh, in the search bar, just type in Brian's Drive-In Theater. Uh, my uh, Facebook page is open for anybody to visit. You can follow me, and if you like, you can friend me as well. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, Brian will be back on Monday with uh, the Sword and Sandal Cinema. And by then I'll have something up uh, so that folks can help the uh, Internet uh, Archive. And I will make sure that I include the Internet Archive more often uh, in my links when I'm talking about sword and uh, sandal movies. Um, starting tomorrow, I'm going to be focusing a lot on the uh, Sons of Hercules series, uh, which was a series oh, of films. And I'm going to be doing the whole month to it. I'll be working out uh, to these uh, to these films. I'll be looking up tons of information. I'll be linking to your site um, on the uh, the stars of those uh, films and what else they've done. So uh, I've dedicated a month to that. Um, so that's a project we're starting too. So maybe if Monday you could talk a little bit about that series, that'd be awesome. Oh, certainly will. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Uh, you are an incredibly awesome individual with eclectic and incredibly awesome tastes. And uh, thank you for gifting us with your knowledge, with your uh, insights, and uh, with your expertise. Well, and I appreciate you having me on, and we'll talk on Monday. That we will. And thanks to all who have joined us from home. Uh, to everybody, a very happy Halloween. Uh, stay safe, stay warm, and uh, be well. Uh, until next time, this is Hercules and Brian wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.
slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details